Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like it's allowed me to be more creative because I've been able to simplify the admin aspect of my podcast and focus on developing more valuable and creative content. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. What is up, podcast world? Welcome to The Motivated Mind, where we talk about hustle, grind, success, failure, all of those things in my journey and some others along the way. for listening. It means so much to me. If I've brought you any value, please be sure to leave a review and hit subscribe. Shoot me a DM on Instagram or Facebook. Let me know what you want to hear more of, and please be sure to share the podcast. I can't begin to tell you how much this stuff means to me. Sincerely, thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hashdash. Cannabis can be complex. Which product is right for me? Which fulfills my needs? It can be overwhelming to know where to start and how to navigate the sea of product offerings. Hashdash leverages a unique algorithm that matches you to the right cannabis products based on your profile. If you're a cannabis consumer and want to explore their value add and an opportunity to sign up for their free beta release, visit hashdash.com. Follow them on Facebook and Twitter at Hashdash and on Instagram at Hashdash.com. Before we dive into today's episode, on episode 96, I dropped some exciting news. I'm now offering one-on-one -on -one calls. A lot of you send me some great questions, and I've been looking for more than just a conversation through a direct message, a way to connect on a more personal level through audio and video, a way to dive deeper and address your particular situation. Well, I now offer exactly that to add more value. We create a platform that allows you to set goals, work on your communication skills, well-being, leadership, team management, emotional intelligence, productivity, or healthy habits. A bunch of you are already signed up monthly and things continue to fill up. For those of you that are interested, shoot me a DM on Facebook or Instagram or email me at scott.themotivatedmind at gmail.com. That way we can get you on the schedule.
Super excited about today's episode. We are joined by another special guest, Ryan Bush, author of Designing the Mind, The Principles of Psychitecture, which is set to be published in January 2021, a book that focuses on the art of designing your own psychological software. Designing the Mind is a psychophilosophical self-development book that combines the ancient adage that true happiness comes from within with the modern modern metaphor of the mind as an operating system. Ryan and I discuss concepts around emotional algorithms and the art of restructuring, focusing on what you can control, behavior change, and building habits. I hope that you all find value in today's episode and the knowledge that Ryan brings to the table. Ryan, welcome to the podcast, man. Super excited to have you here. Thanks for taking the time. Welcome. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. Ryan, to give listeners just some some color and context, and for those that are not so familiar with you, your work, or your your journey, kind of provide us with your origin story. I love hearing kind of just layer number one to start out. For sure. So I, I would say there are two different sort of concurrent threads uh, to the development of these ideas that I'm working on. So one of them is um, from the time I was like early adolescent, um, I was very fascinated by studying my own mind. I wasn't even uh, reading stuff out there yet. Uh, The education system had effectively taught me that reading was not fun at that point. Uh, But I was very interested in my own thoughts and my own emotions. And I was starting to pay a lot of attention to them at that point. Um, I later uh, started getting more interested in how I could actually change what was going on in my mind. Um, You know, I think, I think most people end up buying into this sort of cultural assumption that uh, something bad happens and you have a bad emotion, something good happens, you have a good emotion. That's, that's how emotions work. And I was starting to play around with, you know, can I experience a good emotion or no emotion in response to this bad thing that happened? Um, you know, I was starting to get interested in cognitive biases and rationality and in good habits and, and motivation and that kind of thing. Um, so I've always been pretty internally oriented so to speak. Um, And then I started reading at a certain point in high school, pretty much everything I could get my hands on uh, as far as uh, psychology and philosophy, especially practical philosophy, things like Buddhism and Stoicism, um, things that really give you insight into how your mind works and how you can change it. And I continued developing that until I had so many notes uh, related to it that I was crashing the apps I was using to uh, try to take it down. And um, also around that time, I was getting a degree in product design or technically industrial design um, and starting to get actual professional experience in the design world. So um, that ends up coming in with, you know, designing the mind and essentially applying the principles of the design process and the philosophy behind it to the mind. But I would say the first one is definitely bigger. I mean, really, it's, it's much more psychological and philosophical than it is sort of design oriented. But I think those two kind of came together. And I, I just had to write a book at that point. And I ended up going 
part-time at my job, took like a 60% pay cut so that I could really spend a lot of time developing this book. And now here we are a year and a half later or so. I, I, first of all, I love the hell out of you already. Where you're coming from is like what we talk about on the, the podcast. You dive a lot deeper in, in the book. Um, and there's a lot more meat to it than I'm able to even remotely come close to in 20 minutes. But the one thing, or there were a couple of things there, but the, the one thing that I really loved is this kind of crossover you were talking with product design and like kind of controlling and designing the mind. I feel like as as humans, as a species, we we focus, there, there's so much stimulation around us every single day. And it's so amazing that the one thing that's planted upstairs in our head is the one thing that I'd say, I don't know what the percentage is, but like 95% of people think that there's there's a lack of control to reformat it. And I know in your book, you talk about this as kind of like an operating system, an OS, right? And I I adore the hell out of this because I've actually dropped content around that, that literally your operating system, you have the opportunity every single day to change your operating system. And I find that so fascinating because it's right here and yet it's everywhere else that people are looking to change or to manipulate or whatever. But it's the the one thing, the most powerful thing in the world, which is right upstairs. It's also very ironic that there are so many exercises people focus on and all of these other kind of routines that they create. Like, But it's this mindset or this ability to actually sit and do some exercises with yourself. And there are about a billion, trillion different things I know I'm preaching to the choir we can do to actually reformat or rework or code our operating system. So I'm super fascinated to actually dive even deeper into your book. But one of the things that really piqued my curiosity is this concept around emotional self-mastery. You know, you actually dive into this in chapter five and this concept around emotional algorithms and the art of restructuring. First first off, I like this these two words, emotional algorithms. I love that. Can you provide just some context around this idea behind emotional control since you started to talk about it and how people can actually master that? I believe you you actually shared like five tips, right, that I think are spot on. But I, it provides some context for us here there because I, there's a lot of gold right there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love it, man. We're definitely speaking the same language here. Um, you know, this whole mind as computer software kind of metaphor has started popping up more and more. You hear about people wanting to upgrade their firmware and all this Um but I, I kind of started realizing it at some point that this wasn't just a metaphor. It's not just uh, a cool way of using kind of techie language. Uh, there's actually a lot of truth to the fact that our mind works uh, sort of algorithmically or like software. I mean, for one thing, uh, we very often focus on individual decisions, individual actions. Um, and I think much more often, uh, there are patterns at the source of these things that are kind of built into our minds we don't realize are recurring over time. And so it, it very much is almost like there's this software and it, it has different inputs coming in and different outputs going out, but uh, trying to change yourself without actually looking at that software at the source, uh, it's not really going to work or it's not going to, it's going to require too much energy for you to sustain. 
uh, when it can be much more of a sort of creative design process. Um, so with emotions in particular, uh, emotional algorithms, the, the way I under, understand it and kind of frame it in this book, are these automatic emotional responses, these habitual tendencies that we have when certain things happen in our lives. Um, you know, one, uh, one way to look at this is through the lens of cognitive therapy. And this is one of the, one of the things that really made it click for me that this is how the mind actually works. You've got these, um, you've got these thinkers uh, like Aaron Beck, who uh, is essentially the father of cognitive therapy, who found that we have these negative automatic thoughts, uh, it's called, that trigger certain emotions, right? So rather than you know someone insulting us or us having a major setback in our life and automatically having this negative emotion, there's kind of this intermediate step. There's this cognitive interpretation or appraisal, it's called, right? And it's really, I have found, and a lot of research has found, the key to changing your emotional experience you're right that a lot of people think that they can't change their emotions. And there's plenty of science of the, uh, of emotional self-regulation that shows that you totally can, right? And probably the most effective tool is cognitive reappraisal or restructuring. So what you do in this situation is you ideally keep a log, right? Of, of your emotional reactions, right? If you see something, popping up in your own mind, if you find yourself getting in a situation and having the similar emotion repeatedly that you don't like, that you think you'd be better off without, take a, take a note of that in a notepad or an app or something. And what you really want to pay attention to is which situation triggered it, right? And, and over time, you'll start to see patterns in this. And almost even more importantly, what thoughts did you have which preceded the emotion, right? What you know, did you say, oh, that person's right, I am a loser, whatever, uh, you know, or did that end up in this ruminative spiral where you decided that you're, uh, you're worthless and unlovable? And, you know, these sound like exaggerations. These are literally the, the way that, you know, cognitive therapy patients feel about themselves. But a lot of people who don't necessarily need therapy who aren't at that severe level can really benefit from these principles and from understanding how our mental phenomena really change to get chained together and uh, and what actually causes our emotions systemically i i love this i you know what i there there, there are so many things here um there are a billion different ways we could take this but why do you or at the at the core of this it's interesting that a lot of us get into kind of this revolving door where we know it affects us and it's creating this like emotion and or a negative response that we have or whatever. But a majority of people don't take that time, what you're talking about, actually analyzing it. And I talk about elevation a lot, you know, like the, I kind of break it down into three tiers, like ground level, 15,000 feet, 35,000 feet. But I'm super, super fascinated why we don't track this. Why aren't a majority of people actually spending the time? Because it's, you know, I actually come, I've been in the cannabis industry for seven years. And when our customers actually do a trial, they do a legitimate 
scientific trial with one var- one change in a variable, right? So you know exactly if it's successful or not, what that variable was that influenced it one way or the other. And it's so easy, especially, I shouldn't say it's so easy. There are resources that we have at our fingertips to create this. I have a Google Doc all the time where I take 30 minutes every single day just reflecting on the day. How did I feel? What kind of emotions were triggered with certain things? Just so I could spend some time evaluating that. I'm curious what your thoughts around why we were so quick to speed up. And I actually had an executive coach, Joanne, um, on the podcast not too long ago. And this concept around slowing down to actually speed up. We're so quick to just like keep going that we we lack this this idea of actually slowing down to evaluate, but yet there's so much value in that. And so I'm, I'm super curious if you have anything there as to this idea. I know there, there's habits built in there, but this idea around slowing down to actually speed up and evaluating and tracking some of these things down because the, the result from it, the ROI of actually spending that time in those areas compounded is, is massive to our success in our mental health. Yeah, yeah. There are a few different angles to approach that. I think one, and maybe the simplest, is simply that it's work and it's a cognitive load. Essentially, you know, you've you've got a design background, you said, and you've got this idea of don't make me think, right? If you want people to go through a process, you want to remove as much friction as possible. So when you have something that's as internal as your own mind. Um, there's no one else telling you to do this. There's nothing in your life forcing you to do it. There are no deadlines. There's, there, you have to impose all of these things yourself. So the path of least resistance is going to be not to put the time in and do this work. Um, another sort of angle to it, and, and this is an interesting kind of speculating, speculative idea that I play around with in the book a little bit, um, is that ultimately, I think, you know, according to my worldview and and what I understand of the scientific worldview. Our our original programmer in many ways is natural selection, right? It built many of these algorithms into us initially. Um, And it's possible that in some cases, there are certain algorithms, whether cognitive or emotional or behavioral, um, that are bad for us as people, but they may be good for our genes. So for example, it's potentially beneficial from a biological standpoint for us to be constantly monitoring and overthinking our, um, our status, right? What, what other people think about us, right? It's, it's potentially good just for us to, um, to have these awful rumination spirals and self-critical monologues to just get us out of it and to make us care more about these extrinsic things like social status than anything else. So I think often when you have these things where it's like, you know, we're human beings, we're really smart. Why are we not learning this one particular thing? It's always possible that there's actually a good reason that we were built not to pay attention to these things, but it can very much be in our interest to, uh, to misuse our brains in that sense and to, uh, to do what we're not meant to do, but what's good for us. Yeah. It's a, this almost this uh, kind of the, the concept of, uh, around this like fight or flight type thing. You know, we, we generally, you know, fear drives a lot of decisions for people. And I hear it all the time. You said it at the beginning, right? Where you took a 60% pay cut to actually jump in 
and lean into the fact that you want to create this book, like this is a risk, but it's a calculated risk on your end and it will have fruit to bear at the end. And it drives so many people's decisions. And what, what saddens me is the fact that I always think about the missed opportunities, the people in the world that actually were like the Michael Jacksons or whoever that these leaders or that were never came to the surface because they actually went back to that kind of core place of letting fear just drive and dictate the entire ship. And that saddens me a lot because yes, instinctively, yeah, it's, it's built in. It was that survival component for us hundreds of years ago, but there's also not, you know, a a woolly mammoth running around chasing us or whatever, right? Like the times have changed, but while I think it's it's important, there's that component of just balance there for people and really understanding that. And it's so it's it's interesting because there's this idea of like uh, water to your point about friction, finding the path of least resistance. And it's so funny, but the concept of actually putting in the time now in the ROI long term. It's it's interesting because I, I've seen so many uh, either memes or quotes where people are like, hey, you'll go out and you'll spend $200 on a pair of like Yeezys or whatever, but you won't spend $200 to invest in yourself, whether it be, you know, investing in an app that will help with your your mental or whether it be a, a masterclass or something like that. And that concept is always super interesting to me where we take that path of shortcuts and you know, what's funny about this podcast too, I do these like one, two, three, four, five kind of tactics for people. And we always look for just the clear cookie cut answer. Like, how do I get this done? What's the easiest path for me? And it's like, while I understand where you're coming from, gain some elevation for a moment here and just think that one, it's not going to be one answer. There are about 70,000 variables on a daily basis. I'm making up that number, but there are a ton of variables. It's not just one thing. So that click in the mind to say, well, this is a path of least resistance, but yet you create more work for yourself long-term. So the Mm -hmm. short-term And there's always this concept we, even in like business, think about how businesses are set up, right? Quarterly, right? We're talking three-month thinking, especially with like public companies. It's not thinking, you know, the really good businesses are thinking five, 10 years down the road. And that cycles down to human behavior, I see a lot, where we're thinking so much short, we're thinking so short term, either 30 day or just even 24 hours. Like, how do I just get, how do I make a change for tomorrow, not how do I change things for the next year and five years? And that path is is intriguing to me that we pick that path of, well, I want that shortcut. There are no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts that are going to pan out successfully for you long-term at least. Right. No, I, I think you're definitely right. And, and it's I think it's true of all of us. It's definitely true of me. You know, I have my days occasionally where I do start feeling very risk averse and and like I need security and I start thinking, what am I doing? You know, writing a book right now. Um, But most of the time I'm able to kind of step back and really think it through and say, what is the actual risk? First of all, not, not this kind of inflated perceived risk that I've turned it into. What is the actual risk? Like I spend a lot of time writing a book or whatever, and then it doesn't result in anything. And then I get another job or something, right? It's, and I've learned a ton and I can then use that to go and do something way better. Right. So there's, there's a, there's very often not nearly as much risk as we think. 
Um, something that I encourage people in the book to keep in mind uh, is that comfort, the kind of comfort that can be provided by a full-time job, by a, you know, a serious relationship, by a lot of potentially good things, can also serve as a sedative that, that keeps us kind of locked where we are, keeps us complacent, and, and makes us less and less likely to go and do the things, like you said, that, that we might have the potential to do. You know, I, I think about what you said a lot, the, the missed potential, right? And I think about, like, there are days where I think, like, I'm not going to make it doing this. I should, I should go and do something completely else. And then I think about all these people who are not necessarily that much smarter or more business savvy or, or you know, better writers than me, whatever it is, who have made it. And I say, like, I would be another one of those people that you described that, that just kind of gave up. Um, and, and didn't realize that potential. So I think it's very important to use your ideals as kind of a guiding uh, North Star, right? To, to ask yourself when you're not sure, you know, is this job right for me? Should I leave and go do this, right? What, what is your ideal self doing? What is your ideal life? What does that look like? Um, and that can help you navigate some of those difficult decisions of whether you, you do take that path of least resistance or you go and try something bigger because it's not necessarily the best decision for everyone to go and take a, a huge risk go be an entrepreneur right some people it's it's really not the kind of life they should be living right but you have to you have to get in touch with yourself enough to know yeah that 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 listening right that i feel you know even people just listening like what we're, we're talking right now i don't want to talk to just talk i want to talk to listen in what you're saying there's something that you really hit on that I, I think is, well, the first point here is this idea of like your inner self and what you really want, because it isn't a one size fits all. Not everybody wants to be a business owner. Not everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. Not everybody wants to be a leader. And those things are okay. The one thing that I that I think is is fascinating is this where you said not everybody is, you know, this person might not have been smarter than me, a better writer than me. You know, the one difference there is that they took that leap, like they actually went and did it. And what I think is the most beautiful thing about life is when you actually take that leap and you find out that now you're more comfortable. This like hesitation to take the leap because you're like, well, right here, I've built this safe place. I'm surrounded in bubble wrap and it's comfortable and I'm content and I'm sitting here, but really am I? This this inner vision that I have for myself or the vision that I have for myself is being in that place. But you've got to leap over those little walls and little walls and in, in, in parentheses here, but like those little walls to get to that next place because it's funny when you do break through to making that jump, to getting that to to pushing through that risk you find out that it was super worth it because you said it earlier it's so built up in our head just like our mind's most powerful tool well, it also plays tricks on you we spend so much time either comparing ourselves or just completely overdoing some of the risk in the evaluation when it's just kept upstairs that after we do that thing we're like oh that wasn't so bad it's like, yeah, no, it wasn't, but you had to take the action in order to get to the other side to see it because you can make a hypothesis on anything. But if you're not experiencing that thing, 
how do you justify any of the next moves? Because all of the the just all of these ideas that you're built that you're building in your head, they're off of assumptions. Because you haven't done that thing, you haven't explored that area. So unless you get to that place, how do you then get to the next place? It like creates this big void in this gap. And I feel as time goes by and you hesitate to make more of those, take more of those actions, that gap gets larger and larger and larger. And I'm certainly not saying that you can't start when you're 75 or do any of those things, sure. But it does become harder and harder to make those decisions. And that's so, so interesting to me. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's very interesting to me too. I think um, I, you look at people like at my, my full-time job that I had a while back, you, you kind of look at people who did get into such a comfortable position that they, they really kind of stayed there for like 15, 20 years. Right. I mean, and you see this kind of decay in some people that, that they've gotten to a point where they really, they really don't know what they're capable of because they haven't experimented enough and they've, they've sort of gotten shrouded in this idea that this is like the best they're going to get. Um, I think, uh, I think there are a couple interesting things to touch on. I think, Buddhism and, and its sort of reflection on impermanence is very important to keep in mind when you find yourself getting too attached to, you know, keeping things just as good as they are. And it, it sounds depressing, but uh, whether you end up losing what you have at some point or it simply ends up transforming and, and changing shape, you're not ever going to be able to hold on to things just as they are. So you really should should let go of the idea that that you've secured anything really in life, because you're, you're going to lose it all eventually. Uh, I think you have to remind yourself of this uh, pretty frequently, because you can, you can forget and other people can kind of design your mind in a way other people can influence you, and you start to get sucked into their way of thinking. So you have to step back, get distance, uh, spend time actually reflecting, like you said, you know, I think your daily practice of, you know, actually writing down things that happen through the day and introspecting. That's so huge. There are so many times when you've gotten sucked into this reality tunnel from the people around you and you haven't spent the time actually stepping back and asking yourself, like, is this actually true? Is there any, any weight to this? Um, I think what you said too about actually trying it and, and getting out there, it makes me think about the part of cognitive therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy that is less uh, has less attention paid to it, which is the behavioral part, right? What I talked about is mostly cognitive, like working on these beliefs. But the big thing that that you do if you get cognitive behavioral therapy is that you actually go out and test your beliefs to see if they're true. You actually experiment and and treat it almost like a scientist testing different variables. Is this belief true? Because if you're not, if you're just staying home reading theory, you're you're not going to believe it in the same way as if you actually go out and do it. You know, I'm very much uh, an introvert. I easily could have convinced myself that I'm not the type of person who can go on podcasts and actually, you know, be interviewed and be a public face of like my books and my business. Um, I think if you haven't tried something like that, at least a handful of times, you know, you don't know how capable you are of doing it. You don't know how rapidly you would grow at doing it uh, if you haven't actually done it a good bit and actually tried it out. So you certainly have to experiment and actually go out and do things 
rather than just trying to make a decision in a, in a vacuum. The way that I think about this is almost like marketing for a business or a business in general. Companies, you know, whether it be like Apple or Netflix, are constantly having to test different things, whether it be Netflix with their algorithm, Google with their algorithm, just the layout of the Netflix homepage, which I talk a lot about Netflix um, for whatever <laughs> reason. Um, but the they're they're always trying new things because they could sit at a round table with all the executives and build all of these theories as to why this different layout will lead to 30% more clicks or whatever. But until they try that thing, they're they're they won't know. And I even do this with, I've done it with the podcast uh, earlier on with the podcast and even on social media. I'm like, what, what's going to click with the audience more? What, what will listeners, what do they want to hear? What, what do they receive and say, okay, this is a value. And I could build all day where I think things should go, but I don't dictate the market. I don't dictate what other people do. So rather than just sit here and kind of play with just assumptions in my head, might as well do it and test it out. You never know. You only know what you know. So the only way to find out is to start building that bank of information and say, oh crap. Okay. I can actually influence and I can change, I can change this or I can do this. And this this is kind of a perfect segue too into this. You know, I find that many people, they, they spend so much time focusing on the things that they just can't control. So much time that it kind of it drains their battery and focusing and looking in the wrong direction. And you touch on desires in the, in, in the keys to actually modulating these. Give listeners some insight because I've spent some time here talking about this, but I want your take because I think this is so critical how much time we spend looking in these wrong directions and how do you actually turn that ship around and really focus on those components that that emotional component we were talking about where you're saying no you actually can change these things yeah so to back up a little bit and talk about some of the things you said earlier um just on on kind of testing every little feature and every little function uh you're right that it's so crucial like in in marketing and in product development that kind of thing and it's one of the hardest things to do as a designer right? It is very, very easy um, to get attached to your own ideas, your own uh, preferences, right? What you want to be true. Um, you, you become convinced that you have a better idea uh, of how things are going to go or what people want uh, than you could actually get by testing it. Um, this is a constant temptation, right? It's often treated like, um, like it's just something you learn and you get over. But I think it, it always kind of reappears as this constant challenge. You have to fight your own tendency to think you're certain about something or to think you know best and actually put it out there. You know, in the process of uh, developing this book, I have gone out and found probably 30 to 50 different beta readers, right? I went on Goodreads, found people with similar books on their bookshelves and reached out and asked if they would read it and give me feedback. And those first few times, it was one of the hardest things to do, right? Because it's not all positive, but it has resulted in, in a way, way better book than it would have been. I mean, I've, I've almost completely rewritten from, from the original draft uh, because I learned so much. So it, it's really a necessary process, both uh, in the design and development of something, and then also in, in designing your own mind. You have to go out and actually test it. So 
getting onto the topic of desires and modulating them, right? There are a lot of thinkers who have kind of gone against this cultural idea that, you know, if you want something, you, ne you necessarily need to go out and get it. If you don't want something to happen, the best thing you can do is avoid it. Try not to fail. Try not to have your desires, you know, end up getting disappointed, right? There are a lot of thinkers who have kind of had the uh, insight to go against this and say, if you actually change your desires, you can get what you want a lot more often, right? Because there's kind of this creep function in our desires. We get, we get what we want and then we want more and more and we're never really satisfied, right? But if you can actually uh, learn the, how to adjust the dials of your own desires, you can decide what you actually should be driving towards rather than just being pulled in a million directions by all these different desires, right? So the, the real key uh, strengths here are simply the ability to upregulate and downregulate a desire. And I think we all do this on a pretty regular basis in some form, but it's really good to actually be deliberate about it and to be aware of these processes. So to upregulate a desire, you essentially think about the desired object, whether or not you want it, and, and really focus in on all of these sort of hot, uh, motivational, delicious details of it. Right To downregulate, you want to keep your distance from the object. You want to uh, think about it in an almost alien way, right? Marcus Aurelius talks about reminding yourself if you if you find yourself craving too many extravagant foods, right? Think about what it actually is in this very objective way. This is just the meat from a pig or or this is just a, the uh, a little bit of juice squeezed out of a grape or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, he and the Buddha talk about this in terms of sexual desire as well. There are all these different things that it can be applied to. And there are certain uh, almost functions uh, that you can use, sort of cognitive technologies, to actually regulate your desires in bulk. One way of doing this is just by expressing gratitude and about thinking about the things that you have, right? This is a great way to downregulate desires for all these things that you end up wanting and, and kind of resetting your expectations because a lot of what you want isn't actually something that you want, right? It's not something that your ideal self would be doing. It's not, it's not in accord with your values, right? So those desires can either serve as an obstacle or they can help fuel you, but you need to be able to adjust them. I say almost like, uh, you know, increasing the gas in a car, right? With a few more steps, we'll say, um, you know, there are a ton of others. The, the view from above is a great method of essentially looking at your life, looking at the world, the universe, as if you were up in, in outer space and, and it was all a bunch of tiny ants, right? It's essentially a, a huge distancing tactic for your whole life when you become overly invested uh, in the way things are going in your life. You can kind of step back and, and downregulate all these desires and say, I, I don't actually need all these things. It's not actually all that important, right? And, and you can really start to embrace uh, what you have and, and what your life is when you do this. I go through a, a ton of these in the book, but essentially, you know, everything from a very simple example is if you're trapped at, um, at a traffic light, you know, we, we often get frustrated because we want to be somewhere else. Right. If you are 
occasionally trying to get something done while you're sitting at a traffic light, you sometimes get frustrated by the fact that the light turned green, right? So we clearly have these two conflicting desires. And often when we find ourselves getting frustrated all the time, it can be good to almost pit them against each other, right? So sort of to, if we're sitting at that red light waiting for it to change, try to cultivate the mindset as if we were eager for it to change or as if we were uh, eager for it to stay where it is, right? So you can almost counteract your desires with opposing desires to cancel them out and, and to sort of neutralize them. And this this generally serves both to um, help decrease useless suffering, right? Because we often end up um, sort of uh, longing for things that are impossible, that are in the past, right? We end, we end up having all these rogue desires um, for things that, that there's no way they could possibly serve a purpose for. We want something that's already lost, right? We We want to um, you know, we want the coronavirus to be over. We want the president to do this or that, right? Um, you know, there's no point in desiring things that we don't control. So if you can get more control over the desires themselves, you can end up getting what you want uh, pretty much all the time. <laughs> I, I love this concept. And, you know, it's, I call them almost like fillers, right? Those Those things in your life that you're applying to your life because you think that they will ultimately lead to happiness and some sort of like fulfillment. And I think where some people, there are two things here, this gratitude piece that you mentioned, and then also this piece of like purpose, you know, generally I've noticed even with myself over the years that those fillers are easy to come by, whether you think, you know, it's a material thing, right? Where it's a, it's a car, a new house, new pair of clothes. And it's just this cycle of just applying more and more and more of those fillers. And then after five, 10, 15, 20 years, you're not feeling any different. You would think there would be a epiphany to be like, huh, maybe that there's something deeper here that I need to kind of excavate. And finding or looking toward to your inner self and looking for purpose drives so much more and you start to realize that all of those things are just fillers right that 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 idea of the grass is always greener on the other side or i need just this one more thing and that will make me happy but yet we've done it 7000 times in the last 5 years and it didn't get <laughs> us anywhere and yet we get back into that cycle and Bouncing back to this idea around gratitude, I think that that's an awesome exercise to even in the moment be grateful for what you have and be able to just this realign your perspective to realize that we all have it a lot better than we kind of make up in our head sometimes. And even when you're at a, a, a red light or a green light, whatever, you're sitting at the red light, oh, we'll actually have two more minutes to actually appreciate, appreciate here in new England, the, the foliage or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, or I just missed this like accident that almost happened. There are so, I love this, this, this thing that you talked about pinning things against each other. And I was on the podcast with someone else and we were talking about this, this concept around gratitude and also grace and being able to use grace to, to, push these things against each other to say, well, I should be studying or I should be doing this thing. However, 
I got to spend more time with my brother or with my mom. Being able to like switch that negative automatic mindset and balance that with something positive that will influence you to look beyond just the things right there and then. And um, I want to explore this 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 concept because these things, they're all practice like daily. It doesn't all of a sudden you do it once and it's like done. It's like now until the day you're dead, this will be a thing that you will constantly do. And let's talk a little bit about that because it goes back to almost this conversation around shortcuts. There, You're not going to do this these practices or have these these new habits forming and all of a sudden in the next 30 days, it's just hey, it's always there. It's going to be a constant practice. There is not one thing that I'm sure you or me or anybody else that does just like once and it's done, like a triathlete, like whatever, football player, swimmer, they're constantly swimming, making sure their cardio is up. They're constantly eating properly. And this this perspective thing, this this practice around gratitude or being able to pin these things against each other, it doesn't just go away. You can go to the gym and work out for three months and get really bulk or you know increase your cardio or whatever. And the second that you miss one day or two days, all of a sudden the muscle starts going down, fat starts coming back, your breathing changes, blood pressure, all of those things. And the mind's no different. And so that this idea of these concepts are remarkable. And I think that they are amazingly powerful. But these are not things that you just want and done. And it's good. You're, you're set for life. Constant practice. Yeah, this is uh, one of the, the drawbacks of a book as a medium for conveying ideas. I think the biggest purpose of this book, as far as I'm concerned, is to instill this mindset right? But ultimately, a book doesn't force you to do any exercises. And if we're honest, generally, when we are reading a book, and it talks about exercises, we're like, Oh, that's a good exercise. I'll come back to that someday, or something. So um, I definitely have ambitions to take these ideas and put them into a form that is much more implementable. Uh, And that could take a lot of different forms. But I mean, I need it myself. I, you know, you you get to where you get bored of your daily practices, right? And it becomes much harder to do them and they become less effective once you're bored of them. You know, like, I don't know if you've heard this, but like writing in a gratitude journal, it's it's actually less effective if you do it every day than if you do it every week because it turns into this chore that, that you almost try to get through every day and you don't put the same thought into it that you did when you started. Um, so very often it's a question of what system can we put in place that will avoid all these kind of drawbacks. Um, I think it, it starts to get into kind of the behavioral side because there are a few different reasons why you want to uh, kind of change your desires, right? One of them is for emotions like we talked about. Another one is for, you know, your cognition and your thinking because, Desires are one of the greatest distorters of reasoning, right? If we want something to be true uh, for all these different reasons that we're, we're built to want certain things to be true, uh, then you're not going to be able to think clearly. So you, you increase your thinking by being able to modulate your desires. And then, of course, there's the behavioral side, right? You can fuel yourself in the right direction uh, or you can keep yourself from uh, wanting the things that are easier or or um, you know, more addicting. Right. So I think that's really when, when it 
becomes time to actually shape your behavior and ask what is going to lock me into the right system? What, what can I put in place that will habitually force me to get better over time, even when it gets boring or when I'm not as motivated or inspired? I love that. And I think that's a perfect place to stop. Ryan, I, I cannot thank you enough for coming on to the podcast. I highly suggest everybody read your book. I'm not finished it yet, but just the pieces that I've gathered from this, I'm like, this is my cup of tea. I love this stuff and I'm learning a ton. So for this is coming out in January, 2021, awesome way to kick off the new year. I want to, where can people find you? Right. Where can people follow kind of your journey? I'm sure may you were talking about, you know, a different different platform for some something a little more like tangible potentially in the future. Where can people continue to follow your journey and the things that you continue to produce? Yeah, if you go to designingthemind.org, uh, you can subscribe to the email list, which uh, is going to keep you informed and you'll know when the book is out and everything. You'll know future things that I'm doing. And I'll also send you a bunch of ideas uh, in just regular emails. Um, and when you subscribe, you'll get a guide to psychotexture that's kind of a, a 50 page uh, guide to hold you over until the actual book is out. Uh, so yeah, you can check that out. And, um, yeah, it's been a pleasure for me too. I I really enjoyed it. So thanks for having me. Awesome. Ryan. I I super appreciate it. And I will actually link all of that in the show notes for the episode too, as well. So everybody can easily find Ryan can subscribe to as well and just, you know, suck up more value, especially as we segue into a new year. So Ryan, thanks again for joining us, my friend. It was a absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you, man. Subscribe to Ryan's email list if you're interested in a deeper dive into guides surrounding psychotecture, Ryan's future projects, and of course, release updates for his book coming January 2021. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast, please do so. That way you don't miss any new episodes. And for a closer look into my journey and more motivational content, please be sure to like my page on Facebook at The Motivated Mind Podcast. Follow me on Instagram at the motivated underscore mind. I've got a lot more to share. I love you all, and thanks so much for listening. <laughs>